Gang, I'm proud of you as a church for the way in which you continue to love well, uh, not only here in the relationships that God's placed you in, but also on all of the different places around the world uh, where God has called us. So um, back in the fall of last year, we went through a teaching series in the book of Revelation. And I said to you guys then that I was a little bit nervous and scared about teaching through the book of Revelation because I'd avoided doing it for 18 years. And uh, I told you that no book of the Bible was so poorly served by modern interpreters as the book of Revelation. Well, guess what? I found another book in the Bible that is in the same category. It's complex, it's challenging, it's hard to figure it out. And um, it's, it, there's lots of language in it that is rich but is filled with allegory that we have to kind of dig around in a bit and figure out. Uh, the book says nothing about worship, about sin, about forgiveness, doesn't actually even mention God by name. The entire book is written in a conversational exchange. And it's like really like nothing else in the Bible. And the topic too is kind of racy and scandalous. And I'm talking about the Old Testament book, The Song of Songs, or sometimes known as The Song of Solomon. So today we're going to jump in and get started with our teaching series there. And some of the unique themes that this book brings up are important for us to wrestle with in our day and in our time. The book is associated with wisdom literature, which is often associated with Solomon's name. So in the Old Testament, that includes books like Job, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes. And then we come to the Song of Songs. And in chapter 1, verse 1, it just starts right away and says, this is Solomon's Song of Songs, more wonderful than any other. And that's all we get for an introduction. It just starts in verse 2, we just start hearing the conversation that these individuals are having. The main speaker in the book is a young woman, and she immediately begins extolling the virtues of her lover, a young man that she's in love with. And she waxes poetically eloquent, and she says, kiss me, kiss me again. Your love is sweeter than wine. How pleasing is your fragrance. Your name is like the spreading out a fragrance of scented oils. No wonder all of the young women love you. Take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. And then the young man starts into the conversation, jumping ahead a few verses, and he starts talking and says, wow, you are as exciting, my darling, as a mare among Pharaoh's stallions. Do not try this, gentlemen, as a pickup line in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't really work. You got to dig through some of the analogies and some of the ancient language to kind of work at that. How lovely are your cheeks, your earrings, Set them afire. How lovely is your neck. It's enhanced by a string of jewels. We'll make for you earrings of gold, beads of silver. And then the young woman responds again and says, Oh, you're so handsome, my love. Pleasing beyond words. The soft grass is our bed. Fragrant cedar branches are the beams of our house. Pleasant smelling firs are in the rafters. So, right away you get this picture. Some of the images that are used here are going to be kind of culturally opaque to us. This is not the way we're going to talk to people that we love these days. But we get the main point right away. 
these two love each other. Like, they really love each other. And so, for eight chapters, we get this conversation between the two of them, this kind of almost semi-erotic love poetry that's emanating forth from the Word of God. And we're not really used to that with other books of the Bible, are we? It's kind of racier than other books of the Bible. So it kind of makes sense then that the contemporary church avoids books like this because in a lot of ways, I think the, the capital C church has a difficult time how to talk about things like human sexuality and intimate relationships and a theology of the physical body in ways that aren't weird and uncomfortable. And what I've noticed is that when religious people tend to talk about sex, they tend to do it with a particular tone, and it tends to be fairly shrill, and it also the content of it tends to be very negative. Don't do this. Not to look at this. Don't sleep with these people. Don't, don't, don't. Figure wagging begins. And it's often when you hear it in church about, it's bad out there. You know, the big, big bad world, the, how sexualized the culture has become. No, no, no. Don't, don't, don't. And there are elements and times when that needs to be spoken and when it's true. But the message that comes across then, either inadvertently or maybe even purposefully, is that the church and God really hate sex. But if that's the case, what in the world is a book like Song of Songs doing in the Bible? Eugene Peterson says that it might surprise you to know that the Song of Songs was at one point the most read, most popular, most preached from book in all of the Bible. Origen was one of the early church fathers. Um, he had a reputation of being one of the strongest biblical scholars in the early Christian movement. And he wrote a 12-volume commentary on the song. Bernard of Clairvaux, one of the most eloquent preachers of the Middle Ages, preached 86 sermons on the song, and he didn't get past the second chapter. Now, some of you got real worried right there. You're like, Brad, you're not going to preach 86-week message on uh, an eight-chapter book that can be read in one sitting in about six minutes. I'd really highly encourage you actually this week to sit down and actually read through the song. And we've also posted a six-minute video uh, on our blog from the Bible Project, which gives you kind of an overview, helps you get a handle on some of the themes of it. So I'd encourage you to look there as well. But we are going to spend six weeks together looking at some of the themes that come up in this book because they're important for us to look at. So we're not going to take it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You actually can't rip the song apart that way and analyze it. That's the equivalent of taking an album of love songs and trying to turn it into a middle school biology textbook. It's not going to work. It's just they're two totally different things, and you need to treat them as such and understand that. So we are going to look at some of the themes that come out that are resonant in this text. So next week, Pastor Wally is going to speak on uh, healthy marriage relationships. What do we see in their relationship and other places in the Scripture in terms of advice and counsel for us and wisdom on how to strengthen marriage relationships? Then we're going to look at the theme of singleness 
because the book of song, uh, the Song of Songs is not just about marriage and relationship. These are single adults who are trying to, at least at some point in the book, they're single adults, trying to navigate through their relationships. And the Bible honors and esteems singleness in a way that sometimes the contemporary church doesn't. And so we need to spend some time there. And then we're going to look at the picture that the song paints of masculinity and the book raises themes of sexual attraction and intimate relationships, and so we'll talk about the theme of homosexuality. Uh, and in mid-May, we're going to finish the, the, with the picture that the song gives us of femininity and biblical womanhood. So some of the things that we're going to discover on our journey might surprise you, so stick with us, because the answers may not be exactly what you have preconceived in your mind about what the Bible says about some of these things. So we're going to begin today by just trying to paint in some broad brush strokes. What would the Bible say and what, what does the Bible teach us around the topic and the theme or a theology of human sexuality? What does the Bible say about this area of our lives that we should be paying attention to? I think the first thing that we need to note is simply that God cares about our sexuality because God created it. Sometimes we think and act as if God only cares about the religious portions of our lives. But we look at the book of Genesis and we see right away, we think about the creation narrative. And we're reminded that God created us as emotional, spiritual, and physical human beings. God created us created us male and female, God blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. And in case you miss what that means, that's a sexual command. And so God cares about sexuality because God created it. And so the implications for us is we need to understand that sexuality is not something that is shameful. It can be spoken about in healthy and constructive and life-giving ways. Absolutely, in our day and in our time, this can be difficult because we're getting so many messages on sexuality from our culture. But let's be clear, and that is that sex was not invented in a dark alley somewhere. Sex was God's idea. He created it as part of everything that he gave to us. And part of this reality is helpful for us to understand because there's some who argue, at least they live, as if spiritual stuff is really good and physical stuff is really bad, like our bodies. We would talk about this and say, well, that's dualism. That's taking something that God's intended to be united and integrated and separating it into different categories. People would say, well, spirit's good, body's really bad. Philosophers would call those people dualists or neo-paganists. But that kind of thinking just is not congruent with what the biblical witness is. Because when God wanted to reveal himself most fully to us in the person of Jesus, how did he do it? He did it in a body. Last week was Easter Sunday, the day that we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. And as Christians, we don't celebrate that somehow Jesus' ghost got up out of the tomb, floated through a still-present rock wall, and then people saw him. We celebrate the physical, bodily resurrection. God cares about our bodies. 
In the book, When Kingfishers Catch Fire, which is a collection of his sermons, Eugene Peterson says it this way, deep in our scriptures and our traditions, there's an enormous dignity that's given to the body, the body's beauty and the body's holiness. God created us with bodies. After all, our bodies are the means by which we love one another and love God. God created us with bodies. It's not a surprise to him that we are sexual beings. And we have to remember that God created and cares about our sexuality because God created it. So then the second thing we need to remember and understand is is embedded in, embedded in that statement as well, is that if God created it, God created and owns uh, all things that he created. And so God then gets to set the parameters for the proper enjoyment of things which God created for our benefit. Al Thiessen has taught us here at Jericho Ridge the phrase over and over and over again, God owns, we manage. And when Al's using that phrase, he's talking about stewardship, of our resources, usually money. But the topic of sexuality is also a discussion that we need to apply this principle to, a discussion of stewardship versus ownership. See, if sex was God's idea and his design, then in other areas, just as in other areas of our lives, God's going to give us wisdom and instructions about how to approach this topic with wisdom. And that's what makes the Song of Songs, so intriguing. Yes, it's poetic, but in this poetry, we actually find all kinds of nuggets of wisdom, of truth, of describing reality, how it really is, to help us think clearly about this important subject. So, for example, in chapter 8, we're reminded of the incredible potency of love and desire. Love is as strong as death. It's passion as enduring as the grave. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. God's signaling to us right here in his word, we need to pay attention to the fact that human sexuality, it's a gift to us, but it's a powerful, powerful force. It can be in our lives. The image that's used in Song of Songs 8 verse 6 is that love flashes like a fire. It is the brightest kind of flame. Think about the power that is resident in a single match. It can do incredible good. I mean, we need sources of heat to cook food, warm our houses, purify medical instruments before surgery, but fire can also do incredible damage, can't it? I was watching the news this week, and they were already saying, listen, gang, it's going to be a hot, dry summer from what we can see, and so be careful where and when you light fires, because this can be dry. Think of the incredibly destructive power that can rage from just a single source of flame in the wrong place, at the wrong time. And so, I think that's one of the reasons why the Song of Songs uses this kind of image to remind us about sexuality. And it reminds us of the third aspect of our theology, and that is that the gift of sex is intensely beautiful. 
but it also has the potential to make it dangerous because it's such a strong and potent gift that God has given to us. One of the, one of the conversations that our culture is having that the church seems to be having difficulty wrestling with is the Me Too movement. One of the things we've seen played out time and time again and discussions as we listen to some of the stories is how sex and the power of sex was manipulated or twisted or used for purposes that it was not intended for individual gratification at the expense or the objectification of other human beings, which is degrading. This should not be. The church should have a clear voice to speak about human sexuality and say that is an abuse and a misuse of something that God has purpose for something altogether different, and that's not it. Because if sex becomes about power and control, which it often is in these situations, you begin to then use people as objects. And when you begin to do that in any area of your life, you leave behind a trail of destruction, not only in their lives, but also in your own heart. You do damage, incredible damage, when you take something that God has given and it begins tw to be twisted and abused and manipulated. Something that God designed to be beautiful and life-giving becomes destructive. And some of you have experienced the destructive power that human sexuality has wreaked in your life. Some of you have lived through sexual abuse, the darkness of that, and so you know firsthand what kind of power that sexuality has because it was wielded against you to wound in incredibly destructive ways. And some of you are still walking out a journey of healing in that. And I want you to know that if you're listening and that that is part of your story, we're here to walk with you in that journey. There's people around here at Jericho who would help, who would care for you, and be a part of a place of redemption. That's one of the ministries that I think God's given to us as a church family. It is not specific to this, but just saying we will take people who are broken, who have been wounded, and we will walk with them on a very difficult and long road of healing because of God's grace. And it's never, ever easy bringing those kinds of very dark things to light. It makes sense that something so twisted like that, something so powerful as human sexuality that was twisted would be weaponized and twisted by the evil one and by evil people to distort and to steal and to kill and to destroy because that's a plan that the enemy has. He's going to figure out ways to take things that God has intended for our good and weaponize them and twist them subtly or very, very significantly to damage. It makes sense that something with such power and such beauty could be corrupted and manipulated. But this should also help us think about God's beautiful design when he created all things. Because we have to ask ourselves, if God created it, what was God's original purpose and intention? 
in creating it? What was God's purpose for creating sexuality, for creating pleasure? Because pleasure can be incredibly seductive and we can end up distorting it, but God actually gave us some clear intention and guidance as to what His purpose was in creating it. In the New Testament, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to a group of people, and we think we live in a hypersexualized culture. Their culture was off the charts in terms of, of just bizarre and abhorrent expressions of human sexuality that were just twisted, and Paul had to write into, that, into the church and say to them, gang, this is horrible, the way in which sexuality is playing itself out among you as the people of God. This is wrong. This is not what God intended and designed. And so he writes, and some of them were apparently saying, well, God has given me a body, and it's given me to enjoy, so I'm going to enjoy it however I want to. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and says, you can't say that. You can't say, oh, our bodies were just made to experience pleasure. So if I want to experience it sexually in a sex, what you would consider a sexually immoral way, who cares? I get to do that. Paul says, no, 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 no. Remember, God created us, and He created our bodies. And so if our bodies were made for the Lord, the Lord cares about what we do with our bodies. We have to be clear then of the place that pleasure occupies in our lives. Because there's certain things that I think in our world today, people are trying to get sex and pleasure to fulfill in their lives. And there's certain things that sex can give you, and there's certain things that sex cannot give you. I love, uh, Paul David Tripp has just written a new uh, book. It's called Sex in a Broken World, How Christ Redeems What Sin Has Distorted. And I highly recommend it to you. It's a short book. It's a good read. Lots of stories, but lots of really strong theological thinking about what is the place of sex and sexuality in a world that's broken and distorted. And he says it this way. The pleasures that God has created and embedded in the world that he made for us were never intended to be where you and I look for identity, for inner rest, for contentment, or stability, or well-being that every human being seeks. Those are the things that sexuality and expression of sexuality cannot give you. Pleasure will never be your savior. Pleasure can offer you momentary joy, it can remind you of the greater glory of God, but it must never become your functional God replacement. And friends, this is true of all kinds of different aspects of pleasure that God has created for us to enjoy. We have an incredible capacity as human beings to take something that God's given to us as a good gift and to mess it up and to try and ask it to do things for us that it cannot do for us provide purpose and meaning. We try this with money and just try and create a sense of worth and well-being in our lives by acquisition. We can try it through a good gift that God has given to us of food. And when we take that too far and begin to actually see and make food do something for us, fill a void in our lives, we would call that gluttony. We can take 
other good gifts, incredibly good gifts that God has given to us. Craft beer, good wine. And we can take those too far. The Bible will call that drunkenness and say, don't let those types of things control your life. Instead, be filled, be controlled by the Spirit. See, the problem isn't the gift. The problem isn't the giver of the gift. The problem is what we do with the gifts that we have been given and, and what we try and ask of those gifts that God has given for us. If we're attempting to find in God's good gifts things that He never intended for us to find, we're going to have problems in multiple areas of our lives, not just in the area of sexuality. So let's think about implications quickly, three implications of our theology that we're going to unpack and then we're going to close. And these are going to come up again and again in our series. So the first one is just sex is not a problem. Sex is not the problem. It's actually a gift that God has given to us. Where it becomes problematic is where we decide how we want to operate with that gift. And we reject the limitations that God's placed around it for our good. Sex has been designed by God to be inextricably connected with things of consequence, things of meaning, like a relationship, a marriage. It doesn't work any other way. And that's why sexual expression outside of the covenant of marriage is outside of God's divine plan for human sexuality because the gift has a context in which it needs to be stewarded well. And we're going to explore that much more when we talk about some of the other topics in this series. That's why one of the most repeated phrases in the songs is a cautionary one, not to awaken love outside of the time or the place or the context where it is well served as a gift. Second implication of our theology and just an acknowledgement that because sex and sexuality is so mysterious and powerful, it can make it very challenging to speak about in healthy ways. And this includes areas of struggle and areas of sexual sin. This is what I find intriguing about the Song of Songs. Right there in the scriptures, eight chapters giving us some guidance on how to think about this mysterious and powerful subject of human sexuality. And again, it's not that our culture isn't talking about this. In fact, our culture is talking about sexuality all the time. Just listen to the radio, turn on your TV, browse through Netflix. Our culture is obsessed in some ways with sexuality. But I think it, that makes it all the more challenging to speak about it in healthy ways. Because the conversation isn't actually talking about some of the root issues. The conversation that is being had at a wide and public level is about the commercialization of a human body that's been commoditized to sell things or sex that's been individualized so it becomes about how do I gain satisfaction from this experience and nothing more. But that isn't how the Bible talks about sexuality at all. Which leads us to the third and final implication thinking theologically here is that our bodies and what we do with them matter to God. Clear command from 
1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that you and I have a responsibility. You and I have a responsibility to honor God with the way in which we conduct our life in the body. Don't you realize your body is the temple. It is indwelled. It is filled with the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You don't belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. And because God owns and you manage, you need to manage it as a steward with wisdom to figure out how you're going to honor God with your body. God cares about what we do with our bodies. There's lots more to say about that, but I want to pose just two questions for you, uh, and I want you to think about them. So write them down or snap a picture uh, of this so you can think about and reflect on these over the course of this week and over the course of this series. And the first one is just, what does it actually look like to recognize, to acknowledge God's ownership over my sexuality? If Jesus is Lord of all, if God is a creator of all, he expects that you will steward all of the gifts that he has given to you with wisdom. And our sexual expression and our sexuality needs to be congruent with that and needs to be congruent with the two greatest commands, that we would love God and that we would love people with a love that is genuine and pure and deep and holy and all of those other things that you might attach to that. So what does it actually look like to recognize and live under God's ownership over the topic of sexuality? And the second question is this, in this area of my life, how then can I think and speak and act in ways that honor God and in a way that honors others this week? Maybe it's an assessment and thinking about some of the motives behind why you do things that you do, how you dress. Maybe you need to analyze some of the media intake in your life and ask if it reinforces or distracts you from God's design and vision for human flourishing in the area of sexuality. It's a complicated set of questions that we're going into as a church. And I don't want to uh, sugarcoat that for you in any way, but I think it's a productive and healthy discussion for us to have because we have to understand that if God gave us this gift, we're responsible to steward it well. Let me pray for you. God, we are grateful that uh, you are the giver of good gifts. The book of James reminds us that every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from you. And so we want to receive all of your gifts that you have given to us with joy and with an acknowledgement that they come from you, but also with an acknowledgement of a responsibility to steward well. We need wisdom for that, God. Some of us weren't taught particularly well how to do that, how to think about these things. Some of us come from backgrounds that have made that incredibly complicated and difficult. And so, Lord, we need you. We thank you for the promise that your Holy Spirit indwells, that we are yours, and so that we can have confidence in your assistance as we navigate the complexity of life. Lord, 
we thank you that you have given us things because you love us. We ask you for great wisdom. Spirit, we ask that you would grant us the capacity to resist temptation, to flee what is evil, to embrace that which is good. We ask, Jesus, that you would guide and lead our thoughts, our words, our actions as individuals and as a community of faith. We want to be among those who honor you and who honor others, not only with our words, but also with our lives. Because the world is watching. And because you deserve to be honored and glorified in every aspect of all that you have created. And so we humbly submit ourselves to this purpose. In the name of Jesus, your son, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, gang, I want to thank you for uh, being with us. I know sometimes these types of topics are a little bit uh, heavy or a little bit deep. And so you'll notice over the course of the next few weeks, some of our gathering structure changes to accommodate that. Ron couldn't find any good songs to end on a message about sex. Imagine that. So we move them all to the front end. So just make sure that you're here on time, ready to go uh, for everything that we've got as we plan together over the next couple of weeks. And God bless you as you go into your week to exercise the wisdom that he's given you in all aspects of your life. Amen.